We're going to be in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, so if you have your Bible, start turning there. We're going to kind of glide our way through 10, and then we'll be spending the majority of our time in chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Two quick plugs before we go into the passage. Next week is Christmas Eve, and we have three services, uh, but two distinct services. So in the morning, we'll have our normal time since it's a Sunday, 8.45 and 10.45. And then at 11 p.m., we will have a candlelight service here. And historically, this has just been a beautiful expression. Um, It's usually packed in here, and there's even some older kids splayed out asleep on chairs, and we love that. So uh, that will be a different service than the services in the morning. Uh, The second thing is just in light of prayers and and families in crisis, marriages in crisis, uh, a marriage retreat coming up in February um, called the Immeasurably More Marriage Retreat, where we are just believing as a church that God can do immeasurably more in our marriages. And so uh, you can go on our website for that, but just wanted to do a quick plug for that. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Okay, so we're going to read verse 1 in 10, and then we're going to skip down to verses 8. We'll read a couple verses, and then we'll go down to verse 32. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. Now, we're going to get 70 names in this chapter. It's called the Table of Nations from the family trees of these three sons of Noah. Okay, verse 8. Let's skip down there. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and that is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalna, and Shinar. From the land he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kala, which is the great city. All right, let's move to verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the face of the earth after the flood. Chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language and common speech. Pause. How does that make sense? It just said that Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent, spread out over the earth. And now it says the whole world had one language and common speech. Uh, these are in the wrong order, we would call it. But I want you to think about it like a movie where you get the ending and then you move back to the beginning to see how you get to that ending. This is what's going on here. It's purposeful. And so verses 1 through 9 in chapter 11 are going to give us the answer to why all of the nations have spread out over the earth. And this is what it says. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward... They found a plain in Shinar, and they settled there, and they said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down, Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing that they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. And so the Lord scattered them from 
there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. And this is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. God, we come to you uh, hungry and desperate for you to speak yet again, and especially this Christmas season with all the different circumstances that come into our life. It just feels like a soup of joy and pain and sorrow, and there's so many different things that we're navigating, and so we need you more than ever. And you have something to teach us in your word this morning, and so I pray that you would do that again, as you always do, for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, So yesterday... um, I went on my phone to see when the Minnesota Vikings were playing, only to realize that they had already played that day and lost. But this time of year, I'm, I'm unashamed to say I love just sitting down and watching some football. And the other day I had this thought while I was watching the commercials in between you know, the quarters of the football game, like what is the story that if we piled up all these commercials on top of each other, they would say about the world that we live in right now? And what would they say about the human beings that inhabit that world. I mean, we have EVs that can drive 300 miles. SpaceX is going to Mars. There's six different commercials for every pain or ache that we have in our body, seemingly able to fix just about anything that goes wrong. IBM Watson is this new form of artificial intelligence that promises to fix all of your business's problems. Even TikTok got in on the action. Supposedly, they're fixing the joy problem in nursing homes. Did you guys see that commercial? Some of you have, you're laughing. It's crazy. They're like, we're fixing the joy problem. I'm like, I don't know if TikTok's going to do that, but good for you. But either way, I'm looking at all these commercials and I'm thinking, if I didn't live on this planet and I plopped down on the couch and I just were to see all these ticking by, I'd think that we live in a utopian dream. Like human beings are pretty amazing. Uh, We got uh, supercomputers in our pockets. I mean, our iPhones alone are amazing Uh, and Yet, if we turn the channel and we turned on the news, we'd see a different story. Nation is still pitted against nation, people group against people group, political tribe against political tribe, sex against sex, family member against family member. Despite our world producing way uh, uh, more than enough food to feed the entire world, people are still starving. And even though we have these amazing pieces of technology that are supposed to make our lives more efficient and more productive. They are simultaneously making us more busy and anxious and depressed. And as a world, we're restless, addicted, disappointed, disillusioned, and unsatisfied. And yet, guys, we can do some pretty amazing stuff. I mean, we're so advanced. Uh, Human beings are amazing. I mean, we are made in God's image. And so I had to ask the question, well, how can these two realities coexist and why do the most basic of life's problems still seem unsolved in light of all that we're capable to do, especially when we bring all of our brain power together? And confused is a good word to describe how I felt, and that's actually a great place to start because this is why we need a biblical worldview. It's why we need Genesis. In fact, I stared at my Bible a few times this week with my jaw just hitting the table because I couldn't believe the clarity that the Bible gives into the predicament that we find ourselves in. And there's 
a biblical word for this place that these people find themselves in. And I think it's pretty compelling for a word that may describe the place we find ourselves in this morning. And the word is Babel. Because the story of Babel is the tragedy of humanity, the same temptation that they faced then, we face today. Our kids will face it, and our kids' kids will face it. And here we learn about one of the most ironic but great temptations in this life to use the very life that we've been given, the breath in our lungs, the very talents and gifts that God has graciously bestowed on us to secure and build a life apart from that very God that gave us all those things in the first place. Babel is about making much of ourselves and very little of God. Babel essentially is about one thing. It's about pride. And what I want us to see this morning is that no matter how hard you try, you cannot build a great life apart from God. There's just no way. It doesn't matter how advanced we become. It doesn't matter how great you become. It doesn't matter how much money you can accumulate. It doesn't matter what title you have at your job. You cannot live a great life apart from the one who created you. Now, if you like to write in your Bibles, I want to draw essentially a line, trace a line through this text in two movements. Uh, if you bracket verses one through four, we'll call this man's prideful quest. Verses one through four, man's prideful quest. And then if you want to bracket verses six through nine, we'll call that God's merciful response. And then I want you to circle verse five and we'll come back to that. First, you got man's prideful quest. Second, you have in six through nine, God's merciful response in verse five. We'll just circle that for now, so remember that this story was written for us, but it isn't written to us. And who's it written to? It's written to God's people after they've come out of slavery in Egypt before they've actually entered the promised land. And if you know the biblical language around the promised land, it's like this micro-Eden, this returning to Eden type of language. And so then the question becomes for the uh, Israelites, like, are they going to follow God? Are they going to pursue this life apart from God? Or are they going to do it with him? And so they get this story, and this story is of the whole world gathered together under one tyrannical leader. And this is where we get that little chunk that I read in chapter 10, verses 8 through 12. We learn about this guy named Nimrod. Now, Nimrod just means idiot today. But <laughs> then, it might as well have meant idiot then, because it means we will, re in Hebrew, it literally means we will rebel or rebellion. That's what Nimrod means. And so just like uh, football teams, why do I always talk about football? I'm sorry, guys, but I'll just, it's, it's in me, okay? But just like football teams reflect the culture of their head coach, king, kingdoms reflect the culture of their king. And so with Mr. Rebellion at the helm, this new culture is going to become a culture that rebels against God under his leadership. And so we're told about this crowning jewel city of his kingdom. It's called Babylon. And at the center of Babylon, they build this tower. And Babylon will become not just a real place, but become biblical language for a proud and arrogant life apart from God. And there's a hint of this before we even talk about the tower, because in verse 1 chapter of chapter 11, it says that all the people moved eastward to build the city. And to us, that's just a direction that they went. But to the people reading this, they would have seen the writing on the wall. Moving east is 
moving away from God's presence. Adam and Eve were expelled east of the garden. Cain is exiled east after he kills Abel. And here these people move east to build the city and the tower. And not only that, if you remember the Noah narrative from last week, after the flood subsides, God essentially gives a new mandate to Noah and his sons to spread out over the earth to be fruitful and multiply. And Babel is the literal reverse of this. We are going to build a city for our comfort, for our security, for our safety. And in the center, they'll build a tower. And the purpose of that tower we get in verse 4. So that we can make a name for ourselves. And this is really the essence of pride, isn't it? Pride is all about you. You build your life for yourself. How high can I build my life? How big can I make my life? Pride is being selfish. It's thinking excessively about ourselves. It's self-centeredness. It's self-worship. It's self-focus. And in biblical terms, the arrogant or proud person is a person who shifts their ultimate trust and confidence from God to themselves. The proud or arrogant person is someone who shifts their ultimate trust and confidence from God to themselves, which is exactly what these people have done here. And unless we think that pride is just some unique special spiritual reality reserved for a few bad people. Notice verse one, now the whole world, Moses says. <laughs> this is not some unique spiritual reality for a few bad people. This temptation is a temptation that the whole world faces because the, fl- the flame of pride starts in the human heart, not out there. The human condition has always been riddled with an insatiable desire to build a life apart from that God and exalt ourselves. You guys know of uh, Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi, two of the greatest soccer players of all time. Uh, not just of this generation, but all time. And they always get compared, you know, because they're, they're born around the same time. They're about the same age. They'll retire at the same time. And, you know, uh, it, there's this funny story about this reporter who went and talked to Cristiano Ronaldo just about his life and his legacy. And Cristiano Ronaldo, I kid you not, said, I believe that I am God's gift to this planet to teach people how to play soccer. He sent me here to teach people how to play soccer. And so later on, that same reporter, he went over to Lionel Messi. I don't know if they were at a tournament or something. And he kind of said, hey, did you hear what Cristiano said about himself? And he said, that's interesting. I don't remember sending him. Um, I love that. I shouldn't, but I do. (laughs) But, you know, we have these types of heroes in in every culture, you know, like Nimrod and Babel or the heroes of the ancient Greek myths. Today's cultural icons and sports heroes are hell-bent on cementing their legacy and their name for all to see. And what are they really chasing? Immortality. Uh, when I lived in Ohio, LeBron was there for a few years, and when you drive up to Cleveland, um, and it would make sense, because Cleveland doesn't have a whole lot going on for him, so uh, <laughs> LeBron was everything, and for good reason. Uh, but they would have this like 20-foot brick, old, like iconic building in the center of downtown, and for every year, 
that LeBron was on the Cavaliers, they would have a new poster of him on this building. It was 20 stories tall. And you drive into downtown, it's one of the first things that you would see. And I remember driving up there one day, and it's like LeBron in this all-black background with his arms stretched wide, his head was tilted towards the heavens, he's got Cleveland emblazoned across his chest, and underneath him, in all-white typeface, there's just four words. And those four words said, we are all witnesses. I mean, this is the type of language that we use when we talk about our cultural heroes that have made a great name for themselves. Like, we are witnesses of your greatness. This is what we do. And what's interesting to me is I think about the way that we love associating with our sports teams. And I love sports teams, but why do we like associating with them? Because when they win, we feel like we've won and we feel like we're better than those other people who lost. It plays on one of our most basic carnal instincts in human beings post the fall. But this is nothing new. There's no new sin. The world always repeats itself. And here we have it 11 chapters into the Bible. It starts with Adam and Eve. It starts to climax in Babel. And it finds its rest in every human heart. And what's interesting is that the people of Babel just happened to use their technological advancements at their time to do this, and they stacked brick on top of brick to build this amazing tower, but the reality is that it's actually gotten much easier for us to build a billboard for our name because with one swipe of the finger or press of a button, we can set out to do the very same thing. And I want to show you why all the great name-making for yourself is just futile. It's useless. And to do that, we have to ask two questions. Well, what drives pride? What actually drives pride? And why do we feel the need to make a name for ourselves in the first place? Well, the author, if you look at verse 4, actually drops us a clue because while the first half of the verse says they are seeking to make a name for themselves, then it says, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Can you hear the subtext? They're afraid. They're fearful. They know they're not supposed to be doing this, but that's an insurance policy. Unless God isn't good, unless he can't be trusted, unless he doesn't have their best interest in mind. And the irony of Babel and the story of the human heart is that the human beings, in the height of their self-sufficiency, their advancements, their confidence, are oftentimes not driven by joy, not driven by security, but driven by fear. And I've found even that some of the most successful people in this life, if you really talk to them, they're not secure at all. But they're afraid, they're deeply afraid, and it just gets them moving. And we have words for this, you know, like we say things like a Napoleon complex, right? And what are we really saying? Oh, you are small, so you feel like you must make yourself big. Or maybe you were bullied on the playground growing up. And later in life, you would learn from your parents that that bully on the playground, they really just feel small inside. They, they feel scared. They're afraid. And so they have to show their aggression towards other people. When we're fearful, we compensate. This is what we do. And so when we compensate, we trust ourselves. And for the people of Babel, in the absence of trusting God, they trust themselves too. 
And making a name for yourself is the language of identity. If you know what a name means, especially in the Old Testament, your name was your identity, and you need a name. You need a secure identity. But the problem is, if you do not know who you are, you will use everyone and everything to secure your world. If you do not know who you are, you will use everyone around you and everything that you can get your hands on to secure your world. The root of pride is fear. One of my uh, mentors in college, uh, his name was Dr. Jerry Root, and he was one of the leading C.S. Lewis scholars in the world, and he um, actually disagreed with Lewis on a lot of things. And one of the things that he disagreed with Lewis on was that Lewis thought that pride was the greatest of all sins. And I actually agree with Dr. Root on this one. He says, I don't think that pride is the greatest of all sins, but I do think that it is the apex sin. And so just like the Tower of Babel has to be built and the apex of it has to sit on a much larger, more sturdy base, so it is with pride. Because without insecurity and fear, pride could not rest at the top of that tower. Because think about what pride is. Pride is just pretending. Pride is just pretending. It's this tendency to make myself look better than I am because I am afraid that if people really knew who I was, they would reject me. And so fear drives that pride. And our culture is so good at driving more and more of that pride into our lives because we sit on these platforms where you're expected to portray this picture, perfect life. And so as you get these images and they come into your brain, you assume that you have to be that way too. And so you have to put on this mask. You have to masquerade all the, uh, the issues in your life. You have to pretend that you have it all together. And so we build bigger towers in our lives to compensate. And even in the church, this temptation is alive and well today, this pressure to build bigger buildings, to have the best branding, to make our name of our specific church great instead of the name of Jesus. It's incessant. But it's all just hiding. Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they They try to cover with fig leaves and here are the people at the Tower of Babel. They're just using a tower, but all they're doing is really just covering the sense of inadequacy. They don't know who they are. At least they've forgotten. Now, some of you are older people, no offense, but you'll remember the the movie Chariots of Fire. Okay, a ton of people. The old people must be at the first service because everyone was like, yes. And then this service, everyone's like, no idea what you're talking about. Um, hey, we got one. I mean, it, was, it came out in the 1980s. I wasn't even born yet, not even close. But regardless, just go with me as I've offended half of you in this room. And in that movie, there's this guy named... Uh, Harold Abrams, and he's going for the gold medal. And man, he's just striving for it. Um, and at one key climax in the narrative, his girlfriend comes up to Harold, and he, she says something to him. She's like, why are you after that gold medal in the 100-yard dash? And Harold responds with something extremely telling that reveals something deep about all of us. And he says, well, because when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. And isn't that all of us? If I just have X, then I'll be secure. If I just look like Y, then I'll be happy. If I just do 
Z, then people will know that I'm significant and worthy of love. I even once had a young CEO tell me, literally, I had no idea who I was when I got the title of CEO, but that title was everything to me. It told me who I was. If you don't know who you are, whether it's running a race, running a company, or raising your kids at home, there will be towers you feel that you have to stack brick on top of brick to build in your life to know that you are secure, period. And you think that this is freedom. You think that this is life. You think that you want to live for yourself, but it's a trap because now you've got to go do it. You've got to go achieve it. Because if we don't look outward to God to name us, then we have to name ourselves and for any sense of security in this life. Now we have to go achieve that identity. And often in the frenzy to build our own name, the reality is that just underneath that facade of having it all together is insecurity, fear, and doubt. And when this infects a leader, it has grave consequences because if you, know, if you don't know who you are, and you live this lie long enough, you know who you become? An idiot, like Nimrod. I know his name doesn't actually mean idiot, but that's what we look like when we try to use everyone around us to secure our identity because we don't know who we are. And you don't end up just hurting yourself, but you hurt those around you. I want us to audit our soul real quick. Do we know who we are? Do we know what we're doing here? If everything that currently gives you a sense of identity and security in this world was stripped away from you, your bank account was cleared, your title at your work was taken away, your Instagram followers wiped clean, would you still know who you are? Would you still be secure in this world? So you need something that, through all of the circumstances of life, does not change. You need to be named, but only God can name you. Which leads us to our second bracket, God's merciful response. Verse 6 says this, Then the Lord said, If as one people speaking the, name, the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing that they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. And that is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. All right, this is an aside, but I, I, I'm convinced that this passage is written the way that it is as a parody to our human pride. Because they build this amazing tower, <laughs> this thing that's going towards the heavens, and God's like, I gotta, I gotta come down so I can even see that puny little thing. <laughs> wow, good job, guys, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> and isn't this the truth with any of our advancement, all of the achievements and accomplishments in our life? Like, they can't make us like God. We think they make us godlike, but they don't even come close. They can't prolong our life. They can't prolong our name. The reality is that 99.9% .9 of us in this room, two generations from now, our, our great grandkids might not even know our names. Do you know your great, great, just 
Test this. Do you know your great-great-grandparents' names? If you don't, that just shows how much we can be forgotten. And yet we are loved. We are secure. And if our name is written in the book of life, it will be secure forever. But that's the only place that it matters where it's written down. For all of our greatness, apart from God, the problem is that it just bypasses the fundamental problem of human brokenness and rebellion against him, and therefore it will never be enough, and it won't solve anything. And God even acknowledges in verse 6 how amazing human beings are. I made them in my image. Nothing will be impossible for them. And think about the world that we live in. I mean, nothing's impossible for us. Have you been on ChatGPT? I did it this week. I couldn't believe what I was looking at. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's like this AI, and I'm like, what? And we made this. We, we made all these things. This iPad that I'm reading my notes on. I mean, I have a screen. I can look up my notes. In five seconds, I could look at Facebook. I could call someone. I could take a picture. And we just pretend that this is normal. Guys, human beings are awesome. And God even says that nothing will be impossible for them. They'll do amazing things. But the problem is, if God lets you drink your own Kool-Aid long enough, read your own press clippings, uh, read your own comment section, and you get all puffed up and your head goes in the clouds, guess what? It just takes longer and longer for him to bring you down to actually be dependent on him the way you actually are. And so God, in his utter mercy, says, I can't let them build this tower. Because if they think that they're secure in themselves, then they will be secure in themselves, and they'll never come home to me. And so this is what we call in the Bible a severe mercy. Yes, it is God's judgment, but it's his mercy on the people. They can't handle it. And why would God do that? Because he loves you. And he wants you to be like him. And for all the ascending that we do in our lives, God doesn't do that. He descends. He is humble, even when we are prideful. And remember, God didn't need anything when he created the world. And if you remember from the beginning of our series, think about how God even created the world. It's meant to tell us something. Think about the movement of the narrative. Days one through three, God creates the heavens, the sky, the earth. Day four through six, he populates the heavens, the sky, the earth. And then where does God dwell? On the earth. God comes down. And Babel is not just a prideful quest. It is an attempt to reverse the order of creation. We go up to be like God. That's what pride is. So what's the solution? Verse five. You had it circled, but Yahweh came down to see. Now, let's nerd out here just for a second and talk about the structure of this passage. Now, normally, if you're preparing to preach, you do structure work. Every passage has structure. In Genesis, there's actually a lot of interesting structures, and those structures reveal an emphasis of what the author is trying to say. And like I said, normally, you don't need to talk about this because structure normally doesn't preach, but it preaches in this passage because if you remember when we talked about a few weeks ago this idea of a chiasm. A chiasm, uh, the best way that I can describe it is it's, it's kind of like a mirror 
and that the center of the mirror is the most important part. Or like a burger, you have all these elements, and then the center of those elements, you get the most important part. And the whole of verses one through nine is a huge chiasm that mirrors one another, and right in the center is where the author wants your eyes to be drawn, and it says, and the Lord God came down to see. And you go, well, what does that mean? All we want to do in our pride is ascend. But God in his humility always descends. He comes down in creation. He breathes the breath of life into his people. He comes down to walk with his people in the garden. He comes down to them when they sin. He comes down to Cain after he kills Abel. He comes down at Babel in the midst of their pride. God is always coming down to us. And isn't this the story of Christmas? God leaves the wonder of heaven and he comes down yet again. This time in a baby, born not in a palace, but in a stable to a poor family in a no-name place. He becomes a nobody on the world's scale. He has no beauty to attract us to him. God comes down. Here is our king. In contrast, King Jesus with King Nimrod. Contrast their kingdom cultures for Nimrod to make his name great was the essence of his existence. For God, he doesn't go up, he actually comes down, humbling himself. That's what greatness looks like. In fact, in Luke 7, even Jesus says this. He says, nobody on this planet is better than John the Baptist. Nobody's greater than him. But you know what his conclusion is? Even the least in my kingdom are greater than he. Or how about Matthew 18? The disciples, as we all do, you know, it can infect religious people too. They come to Jesus and they're like, who's going to be the greatest? Tell us, Jesus. Tell me who's going to be the greatest. And you know what he does? Just a really interesting thing. He points over there. He says, get that kid for me. Come on over here. He brings the kid. I could just see Jesus putting his hands on this kid's shoulders. The disciples are circled around. He's in the center of all the disciples. And he literally points to his disciples. He says, unless you humble yourself like this child, you'll never inherit the kingdom. Well, what's, what's, what's Jesus doing? We all got to become like Benjamin Button? No, you should see my kids. If I didn't exist, they would die, humbly. They couldn't survive. They can't change themselves. They can't feed themselves. You should see the stupid stuff that they do. They'd be dead in a week. They're utterly dependent of me. And this is what Jesus is saying. Unless you become like a child, unless you're so humble and you realize how desperate you are for every breath from me, every piece of food that I give you, all of the things in your life, they come from my generous hand, and unless you humble yourself like a kid, you can't inherit the kingdom. The way of the world is I am self-sufficient. This is where I find my security. I can do it on my own, but not in the kingdom. The kingdom is going down, not up. And see, we think being great is all about exercising power. And this week I was having a conversation with uh, 
Brian Medallia, who's our community life pastor here, and he's like, I'm, telling, I'm talking about some of these things, and he's like, have you ever read John 13? And I was like, well, yeah, but I don't, I don't know what's in it off the top of my head. And he said, I want you to take a look at John 13. And uh, this is what John 13 says, verses 3 through 5. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. The next sentence. So Jesus, having all the power, got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around its waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. What? This is so opposite of the way the world works. And you know, we talk about the upside-down kingdom. Have you ever heard anyone say that? Oh, the kingdom is upside-down. No, it's not. We're upside-down. The kingdom's right-side-up. This is the way it's supposed to work. Even though Jesus had all the power, everything, all authority, he gets on his knees like a slave and washes the filth off his disciples' feet, the very ones that moments later are going to betray him. Leave him, and he's going to die alone. And he does it for them. Who is this God? But I'm not just here to tell you, look at that God, but that he actually believes that you can become like him. Which is why Paul, in this beautiful poem in Philippians 2, says, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, Paul says, therefore, God has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Humility is just a true view of ourselves in light of God and others. Humility and honesty are synonyms. If you're honest with yourself, you'll be humble. And if you're humble, you're generally an honest person. In the eyes of Paul, the only humble posture before the king of the universe is you get on your knees. That's what Paul says. This is our God. Jesus died so that you could have the opposite mind of Babel. So you actually start thinking like the king. And we can understand when the world looks like Babel, but not the church. We have a different mind. And that's why this Babel stuff is most heinous in the church. When pastors start looking like tyrants and churches start looking like billboards for their own name's sake, not in the church. Jesus says, I'm not just going to come down to you. I'm going to serve you. And then I'm going to die for you. And you know what he's doing when he does this? He's naming you. When Jesus dies for you, he's giving you a name. How does that work? Because the gospel is the only thing that tells the truth about your condition. You are sinful. He was crucified because of your sin. But you are loved He was crucified because of his love for the joy that was set before him. The gospel is the only thing that can actually tell you who you are. 
The God who made you, who knows every hair on your head, descended into our world out of his love for you to say, this is how much you are worth to me. I'm even willing to do this. But do you see the weird position that that puts us in? That's good news, but he did everything. We did nothing. There's nothing left for us to do. So there's nothing to become proud about. There's nothing to put our hope in other than Jesus. But you say, Trig, well, no one is actually capable of wanting this type of humble, self-sacrificial life. And you know what? You're right. Which is why God doesn't stop coming down in the person of Jesus, but he comes down one more time. And if you open your Bibles later today to Acts chapter 2, you will see exactly what I'm talking about because in this passage, it's the day of Pentecost. And God comes down once more this time in the person of the Holy Spirit. And he says, not only can you not do this on your own, but unless I take divine residence up in your very body, you have no hope. But now because of the empowering work of the Holy Spirit in our very bodies, every blood-bought follower of Jesus actually has not only a new name, but a new power to live like the very king that they worship. That's good news. And if you read the story of Pentecost, it's quite literally a reversal of the Tower of Babel story. All of the people are scattered at Pentecost. Everyone comes together from all tribes, tongues, and languages. And God says, all these people are going to be my family because of my work. And you know what the text says? They're confused, just like Babel, but this time for the right reasons. They can't believe what God is doing. So Crossroads, I just have a few questions left to ask all of us this morning. Are you exhausted, worn out, trying to make your name great? Are you exhausted, trying to pretend that you are something that you are very clearly not? Come to Jesus. Have the courage this Christmas season to receive him humbly. That's all you can do. The fact that God would make his home here he would come down to us is the only way that we will know who we are. And as somebody pointed out to me in between two ser- uh, both services, I just want to read Isaiah 43, verse 1 to you. It says this, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. You are not your own. And praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, your word says that perfect love casts out fear, and we stand on that today. And we pray the words of the classic hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above. While mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. O morning stars together, 
proclaim the holy birth and praises sing to God the King and peace to men on earth. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born to us today. Amen.